0: Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you are in your car, at work or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com, so please subscribe. We speak today to Frank Holmes of US Global Investors. We start off with a view of his early childhood and uh, lessons learnt in life before actually forming U.S. global investors and some of the things he's seen uh, and learnt along the way. Um, we talk about market sentiment and what drives it. We look at obviously the impact of the current COVID conditions on the price of gold, obviously going through the roof at the moment, what happens when a vaccine comes along. What happens when the US elections are decided. Uh, We look at the current US tensions with China and what that's doing for the marketplace, and generally his view on life. Enjoy the podcast. Frank, how are you doing, sir? Outstanding, my friend. Good, good. I'm glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. I am delighted to be talking to you. Um, We were meant to speak last week, but we had a bit of a technical hiccup on our end, so apologies for that. Um, so where are you at the moment? I'm in sunny, hot San Antonio, Texas, uh, which is now one of the hotbeds for COVID uh, wave two. Oh boy! Uh, oh boy! But you're you we staying safe? You're in the office though, aren't you?
1: I'm in the office, but we have a two-part program where people can work from home and come to the office. And uh, I put brand new uh, filters on the HEPA—they call them uh, quality filters—on my building, and uh, that cleans and kills lots of viruses and. new machines throughout the place with UV that is uh, cleaning air. Uh, So I think
0: the office is pretty safe from that end. Everyone's wearing masks when they're dealing in meetings. Yeah, that's pretty good. We we were speaking to a company called HiQ, I think a couple of weeks ago, Swiss company, and they they do those filters. They also put some sort of coating on curtains and blinds uh, as part of the process too, because they were dealing with SARS originally. They kind of got this Knowledge from the dealing with SARS epidemic of a few years ago, and they're now using it with COVID. It's, it's interesting times. Lots of companies taking advantage uh, as they should. Um, so we've got to ask the big red fella behind you. What's the story? Well, you know, it's a uh, it's
1: a famous uh,
0: Chinese sculpture
1: artist that was making a statement, a social political statement. Uh, is important, I keep it in case because it was getting banged by the cleaning staff. Uh, it's the box has gone up more value. There's only a thousand them made than the red dinosaur, the T-Rex, and it was really a statement that uh, China is making everything for the world, and the T-Rex was that uh, China is eating the world.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's. I get that. I get that. Good. Right. There's the, there's the philosophy over uh, section of this over with. Um, so, look, Frank, I'm delighted that uh, you're on the show. We've, we've had a few, you know, the, the great and the good on here, and um, it's gone down extremely well with people just to help understand, you know, where you've come from, you know, what, how you've got to where you are today. So, how did you get into this crazy world of investing? Where did it all start?
1: Well, I hate you know, when you're a child and you're the oldest, um, there's different pressures on you and uh, quite often the oldest and the youngest are the the big entrepreneurs Uh, and I think that spirit of being an entrepreneur, I was the oldest of 7, a big family and I also think that my mother was a nurse that uh, ended up becoming a a social worker and politician and for the education system of downtown Toronto. My guardian father, my mentor uh, was an Anglican priest uh, who uh, was a true scholar. Uh, spoke many languages, uh, played the organ, harpsichord uh, and so I was steeped in history and social and cultural changes and why history is an important predictor. Uh, just the characters change and, and behaviour of human beings is quite similar. And Whereas my mother was all about sciences and sciences are so important uh, in, in, in safety of people. So I was going to be a doctor uh, and I realised quickly that socialized medicine in Canada was going to cap my income, and I'd have debts until I was fifty. So I made a switch and went into uh, economics and finance, and I found it very easy after
0: all the pre-med uh, studies that I'd taken. Oh, fantastic! Well, that's a quite a segue, isn't it? One is about doing good to the world, and you know, us bankers—surely we don't get viewed the same ways, I don't think. No, you, you have to look at things from 3 different perspectives at all times. <laughs> okay. Right. So, I mean, that's a tough one. I mean, 7 kids. So, you talk about um, pressure. Your, your mother, obviously, you talked about being scientific and you're the eldest, you've got to be there and look after the, the, the siblings, don't you? But what, what sort of pressure did you feel, feel at the time and did that affect the way that, you know, you, you looked at life?
1: Uh, I think that uh, you you learn how to deal with the challenges of of being a leader of the oldest and uh, all the issues of growing up in a family in this inner city. Uh, You're highly educated, but you're in an area that's not as educated. Uh, You have different motivations, uh, recognising that at a young age. Uh, And I always wanted to be financially independent. Uh, Something I just was always, since I realised whatever took, what light bulb went off when I was a child, and so I pursued that entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, I had a newspaper in the the area of downtown Toronto and Grizzy bought it for 17 uh, uh, clients and I grew it to 270. Uh, And I learned about collection, I learned about people that are good people but they don't have the money to pay you this week and how you have to basically fund the accounts of payable and receivables and uh, so you're 12 years old and you're just learning about those things. So I, I think all those lessons just help mature you, but you have to be curious. You have to be ambitious,
0: uh, but you have to have good ethics and values if you're going to be ambitious. Gee, I mean, I, I'm always intrigued by this because we we have a lot of subscribers, and we actually interview some of our subscribers because I I'm fascinated by the mentality of the, the investment mentality, and there's so many things people have in common there. But you know, childhood is a really important period for them. It, it's it forms and shapes. The way they view the world, and and it sounds like it wasn't you know you didn't have a lot of money growing up. It wasn't something that was around. I mean, was that was that need that drive that entrepreneurial drive because you didn't have much money growing up as a kid, or was it you had to prove something else? I
1: think you just wanted to prove. I I just
0: realized uh, seeing how people that
1: lived in the best of area of Toronto's and uh, best universities, I was always going to the universities uh, as a child. Um, and so I was ambitious to go to school. I was ambitious to go to university, and I like being around these very smart, capable people. Uh, and I think the that was an important part. I also was asthmatic as a little boy, and I slept in that chair until I was eight. And you don't realize it, but that adversity was great because to this day I still run, and I'm running probably about a marathon a week. I'm 65. Good that's And. Uh, I know that if my lungs stay strong, the wheezing doesn't come back. Uh, and it allowed me to all of a sudden realise there's competition and I started competing in sports and I had letters in high school for many, many different sports. And, uh, and I think you just don't realise an adversity uh, if you have good family support
0: and love, that uh, you can find ways to overcome it, compensate for it, et etc. That's no, I think that's fantastic. Well, fantastic! You're you're running a marathon a week, and that's that's great. But I I just I like those kind of parallels between, you know, sport as a means to actually recognise there is competition out there that you know you do have to work that little bit harder. I think that's that's quite a quite a good point to make. Um, now talk talk to me about then university years. Obviously, you started. Did you finish and complete? Studying for it to be a doctor, or did you stop halfway through?
1: No, I I, I switched halfway through, went into uh, and I
0: switched universities uh,
1: from McMaster uh, to uh, in, just outside of Toronto and Hamilton, and uh, went to Western uh, University to Huron College, which is the second oldest uh, Anglican school in college in Canada, uh, and it was the basically with the genesis for it. University of Western Ontario is today, started at Huron College, so I had a great tradition. Uh, it was that uh, Anglican Church sort of uh, process of learning and thinking, uh, so I enjoyed that and, and I jumped into uh, economics and, and uh, uh, psychology, behavioural psychology, and I found it all very uh, enriching and I could always apply chemistry, I could apply my bio, my studies of biology. Uh, and recognize that, that biological models relate to innovation and biological models of survivorship relate to entrepreneurs uh, and then groups and how people behave in group settings was behavioural psychology uh, and, and recognising that I, I really enjoyed uh, Western University and to this day I've given back a lot to the school, uh, I have a large scholarship for kids, for inner-city kids me that need capital they have to play a varsity sport and maintain a B average. So it's it's not just the you know, Super A student academically, it's the rounded individual uh, that has those good set of values. And I get beautiful letters back uh, for each year, as a boy and a girl that gets us money, and if they can stay, they're still playing varsity, they're still maintaining that B average, help fund their, their education. Uh, and so that gives me sort of the legacy of, of giving back to uh, my college and also uh, where I grew up in downtown uh, it's called cabbage town The um, scholarships there for the kids uh, that are good readers excellent readers uh, and excel in math that they, they get money for books for going to high school
0: that is fantastic more people need to do that more of the time appreciate it. that's that, that, that's great that's great insight actually um so let's let's move on to no, we are going to talk about Gold, Frank, I promise, and I promise everyone at home, we're going to talk to Frank about Gold. But um, let's just talk about the business as well. You, you know, you're know, US global investors. When, when did that start? How long have you been running that and what was the lead up to getting there? Why did you go on your own? I was so fortunate. Uh, I got hired by many larger firms and I went with a small group of
1: entrepreneurs that are highly successful. Uh, Toronto is the mining capital of the world. Uh, and my original job was a research analyst and I look back at it was like a quant approach of looking at dividend paying stocks. Uh, And then at the same time, mining was a big part of the culture of Toronto. And to this day, Toronto is still 60% of all mining finance in the world. Like Singapore is for shipping. Uh, You get these clusters of uh, intellectual capital and money that come together. And uh, we say this in software, it's Seattle and San Francisco, Biotechnology is Boston and San Diego, so it's recognizing that London was the sort of the, the epicenter for all financial, intellectual capital, and insurance or reinsurance of, of the world, and in particular Europe. Uh, and and so that sort of takes you in that sort of unique type of journey of going with these group, and I end up uh, building out learning research, uh, building out a trading desk for the gold funds in in America, and took each step. Uh, was able involved in my first financing, and I really didn't really know how great it would become, but I knew there were smart people, and that was Seymour uh, Shulik and Pierre Lasson creating Franco Nevada. And that was my first public company that I worked on, uh, taking public as a young investment banker, uh, which has become one of those superstar investments all the way through the year 2000, merges with Newman, eight years later spun out, and still, once again, it becomes the Largest
0: royalty company in the world. Well, I, know, I know you're a big fan of royalty companies, and it's something I do, I do want to talk about there. So, so when, when does US Global get formed? You know, What was it that you set out to do day so, one?
1: So, in that journey, uh, I moved to uh, they were a client and they stubbed their toes and it became an opportunity. Canadian taxes went through the roof. They just brought in a GST, which is pushing 15% on top of your income tax, which is over 50%. So all of a sudden you realize you know you're working so hard and all the money is getting back vaporizing. So I said well, I want to run my own show. I left. I was a senior partner at Merritt, uh, and we were doing phenomenally well. And I moved to Texas. I bought control of US Global Investors and moved here in 1990. So I've been here about 30 and a half years living in Texas. So I like to say that I'm a Texan. Y'all come back, eh? <laughs>
0: Is that the first time you've used that? Somehow, I doubt it. Uh, could you, so, so, but what did you set out to be? You wanted to run your own show, but why? I guess why you, you, you thought it was time, but what, what were you going to do different? Well, you had partners and you wanted
1: to see what would happen if you put up your capital and you're the CEO and I wanted to get out of high taxes. I love the heat and I love warm weather um, and I love the culture of Texas. Texas is a country within a country. When you first meet and you're travelling abroad, uh, an American is from Texas, they don't say they're American first, they say they're Texans. It's really a great pride in, in, in the state of Texas. Uh, they also lead in the number of sharpshooters and, and special forces. Uh, they have a CIA training program the University of Texas A&M. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's a very unique loyalty to the, the flag and the country at a very high level. But at the same time, they're most proud of their being Texan. So I found this journey very rewarding, uh, and it's very entrepreneurial. Uh, many uh, you're seeing more people who leave California want to come to Texas for business and just for their own retirement because of this sort of um, entrepreneurial uh, setting.
0: Right? Why is that important to you? You you, you spent a bit of time there talking about you know CIA CIA training centers, sharpshooters loyalty. Why are those things important to you? Well, you
1: look at it, the great nation of America as, and you go back and we are talking earlier about history, and when, when the British Empire ruled the world and had the most powerful Navy in the world, uh, it, was the, it was significant to have a strong military and people were very loyal uh, to, to the government, to the King and the Queen. It didn't really matter, but they were loyal and they wrapped themselves in the British flag um when you go to countries in like europe uh the only time you see that though, so often is when it's a sporting event but americans do it all the time and uh, they they are very proud of their country and you find that in the universities the competition between universities getting eighty thousand kids out for a football game and there's scholarships we're talking about entrepreneurial If your son or daughter are not the grifted athletes, but they're good in gymnastics so they can become cheerleaders, and that's a full scholarship. Uh, Or they're in the band because they play an instrument because the marching bands compete, the cheerleaders compete, the football, the basketball, whatever. So there's this whole ecosystem of competition, innovation that compete that
0: shows up everywhere in the culture, and it's very strong in Texas, that's what I find. So that, that you like you like that competitive tension, and and there are, yeah yeah, but it, it, in business too. So let's come back to the question, which was, what were you going to do different with US Global that wasn't being done elsewhere? Well, the first part was basically let it run itself and and uh, sort of map out a
1: strategy of changing the funds, and and 1999 came along, and everyone wanted to be a tech person, not a resource and gold and. Uh, my CEO had left, so I became the Chief Investment Officer and started bringing in the disciplines uh, that I learned from my world of science and investments, uh, and understanding ke- how chemistry plays a role, how biology plays a role. And we started to win many awards. Uh, we ranked the top Gold fund in the world, uh, top resource fund, uh, we won uh, Money Journal of the Year awards, uh, so, and in Canada, we had Top Gun awards. So I think that method, bringing that dynamic processing from science into our culture, uh, it changed. And, uh, and then we had a bull market. Nothing helps better than have a bull market uh, and knowing how to skate quickly. Uh, and so that's what really led to our big boom. We created a fund because I was aware of history and the EU being formed. And I grew up in, just in Toronto, and I also lived in, later in my life in, in downtown Toronto, was another area which was dominated by Ukrainians and Poles. And you learn about this culture and this problem. My best friend uh, was Ukrainian. His grandparents. So what happened was realize how educated Poles are and Czechs are, and and the Hungarians, and and the movement into becoming part of the EU. would create something great. Created a fund for it. It went from four million to twelve million. Russia default on its debt. In 98 went back to four million. Then it went to a billion in assets. Uh, and so that vision uh, was okay. And it took me several years before it actually crystallized. Uh, the same thing happened recently in my ETF world with my Jets ETF being the only global airline ETF and a quad approach to picking those stocks. It went sideways for about five years and then exploded during the coronavirus with a billion dollars coming into it. Uh, and so you just realize you have a vision. How do you position for it? And you have to have the financial whereabouts and you have to have just the discipline of educating people why this is a unique
0: asset class. See, I, I like that. I was speaking with Peter Groskopf um, about a month or so ago, and when he, when he came in to Sprott, to they had to do something similar. But obviously, you did it a bit earlier. But applying science and rigor and process to. I guess in a space which was not very digital at the time, and it has become extreme nothing but in terms of algorithm driving a lot of this stuff, but um, is th- that was a key differentiator for you in the marketplace at that time, because most people, it was about big superstars making stock picks and, and publicising themselves. Was that, was that the environment you were competing in?
1: Yes, very much so. And so the, the, uh, the appreciation is to take that quant approach. Uh, and the operative word today is called quantamentals. And, and you're really a fundamental analyst, but you're, you're applying quant tools. And, and one of the things I did see is, is, is um, not applied to macro forces. So one of the big parts in all our perspectives is that we believe that government policies are a precursor to change. Uh, and we believe it's important to look at history, such as uh, 1920 uh, was the Spanish flu. Uh, go back to 1820, go back, so you had this every 100-year cycle and you have something like of a pandemic that goes global. Uh, what drives it is different. Recognizing what that is, uh, and and be curious. So you find, uh, I think the education I had in in Toronto I was blessed with, is very much caught up with the importance of ethnicity and history of it, and then how can you project with that? So we started doing that two thousand two and three. Then I started publishing every week my Investor Alert and the Frank Talk blog. It grew to tens of thousands of people in 180 countries on the weekly thoughts. And it has to deal with these macro forces. And so I've really tried to simplify complexity. When we look at government policies, they're either monetary or fiscal. Monetary is money supply and real interest rates, fiscal is tax and spend. Regulations is a subset of taxation because it's a form of taxation. Then we can take a look at. We talked earlier about India. You know, India in 1840 was the strongest part of the global GDP. It became down a couple of percent, and now 40% of the world's population, but becoming a significant factor in consumption. Uh, and the GDPs per capita have changed dramatically in the past 30 years. That they're one, two, and three. America's right up there. One, two, three. China and India on um, purchasing power parity. What does that mean for consumption? It's real simple. If they're doing well, demand for gold. The love trade is doing well. Uh, Consumption of food, consumption of any type of product is doing well. Then we want to take a look at macro forces of trade. Who are the two biggest GDPs trading? It's China and America. They get into a a punching contest. Well, guess what? It will have ramifications. We immediately saw that in the Purchasing Manufacturers Index unraveling. So I like to apply those historical macro forces. Where are they today? Stick with them, and then look at the factors that drive the stock picking.
0: See again, it's again all interesting. You know, history repeats—cliche, uh, but but probably true. Are you saying that human behaviors don't really change over time? You know, I, I, when we, you know, we have Motions. talked about this. Right. Okay. Isn't Emotion. But it must happen at a faster pace uh, these days, and there's a bit more of internationalization, which is a bit more homogenous uh, behavior as well to all of this. So, how, how do you bring that into your business, and why is that any different from some of the other big firms, which are now sort of latching onto this thinking that you, you came up with originally?
1: Well, I think there's a, a you know more people became interested in macroeconomics in the past probably 8 years, when Obama became the President, I started noticing more macro research, uh, more macro things in questioning, et uh, and questioning, etc. And I think it just can't ignore that. Um, but at the same time, the, the cloud has changed everything. The cloud is, has allowed the Bitcoin to become digital money. Uh, it has allowed artificial intelligence, which was basically in a decade of being in the winter, uh, become very viable. Uh, and all this data up in the cloud, and all of a sudden you can apply algorithms to look at it and, and understand that thinking is, you know, inductive thinking. Uh, how much is deductive versus inductive? Dr. House versus Sherlock Holmes. And the, the cloud has allowed Dr. House's way of thinking to evolve inexpensively and use of data, data, data. Uh, and I think that that's just really important to recognise. Uh, that the quants are using the data. They're agnostic to Trump versus Biden, or this person, that person. They're analysing all the government filings all day long, and they can quickly go back and look at the 8K filing and compare it to to 1,000 other 8Ks in a minute. They can turn around and look at word choice and, and semantics of how that impacted a stock. Uh, I've really been able to identify and show that in, in the Gold space, uh, in Gold equities in particular. So I think you have to really appreciate now you're a fundamental analyst how to use these tools. And I think that a lot of fundamental analysts have dismissed these tools, don't appreciate those tools. And when I went to create my Jets ETF, uh, what I recognized is that you can you apply it. And so when you're looking at this quant world, what's important is, is that there's two major forces. There's electromagnetic force, uh, force of gravity, and there's a the force of momentum and force is equal to mass times acceleration is what a force is. So if you have a big economy uh, and it starts to accelerate, it has a big force on global impact. And that's what we have either population or we have military and we have the highest GDP per capita in America. Innovation drives that. So it's recognising those basic laws of physics. When it comes to mean reversion, which is very important for the world of quants, is stocks will always or commodities or currencies revert back to the mean and it could be rising long term but it'll go above and below above and below or falling above and below it'll revert back to this long-term mean and it's recognizing that that a portion of your portfolio should be mean reverting it's a very powerful tool the moon goes around the earth the earth goes around the sun the sun goes around the galaxy it's just recognizing this sort of um, vortex of movement and, uh, and so, we then come to what are the individual drivers that we look for? Well, the most important when it comes to momentum is growth in revenue. GDP is a growth of the, of the economy's growth in revenue. So, what is the last quarter for the past 4 quarters? If that's growing and the cash flow in the last quarter is also growing with that revenue line, uh, those stocks outperform. And it shows that management is doing a great job in deploying that capital. If they have free cash flow, free cash flow yield, that means they can increase their dividend. They can buy back the stock and they can spend money on expansion or acquisitions. So it's recognising that some of these stock screens are good for screening stocks, like debt to equity ratio, but they're not good for picking stocks. But revenue momentum and cash flow momentum are important tools. And so that's where the quant approach
0: for stock picking becomes critical. Okay. At the beginning of that, you talked. You talked about momentum, okay, and and you've made a few history references. Because we talked before the show started, we, we both love applying a little bit of history to our thinking. But so but here's a thought: so empires rise and empires fall. Where do you think the US is now? Because it seems to be company countries which are lying to the dollar are struggling. Great for gold, but not so good for everyone else. Uh, and some of the countries that are lying to China seem to be doing just a little bit better. So, is this a pivotal, pivotal moment in the uh, global economy, or will we get through this? Well, we'll get through it because America has this unique DNA of adapting.
1: Uh, as Winston Churchill said, uh, the politicians will always have the greatest punch out, but that that uh, wisdom of crowds, that final decision is usually the best decision because they really punch it out. Uh, and I sort of believe in that. Coming from Canada, uh, where everything's uh, yes sir, no sir, please and thank you, correct us everything you say. In America, you know, you just call it as it is. Um, so I, I really think that the freedom, the, the culture of America uh, will still has a lot longer legs to stand on uh, than a lot of gloom there, there. But I think what's important for us to talk about COVID. I believe it's World War 3. When you have a world war uh, and the enemy rate right today is invisible, it's not visible, and it's, you, it's everywhere around the world. So what's happened since Obama's day, if you go back the year 2000, the G20 countries got together and they all talked about global trade, global trade, global trade, drop barriers to entry, drop barriers to entry. Along comes Obama after the crisis of 08, and it's now synchronized tax and regulation. And today, it's World War III, this coronavirus, and how different people are adapting and changing. Is the data collection correct? Uh, oh, it's, and it's being weaponized as a political issue in America because of big election year. It's to recognize that. But push that aside all the G20's finance ministers and their central bankers are functioning like a cartel, they are not competing with each other like in the 70s. Uh, the Italian lira versus the French franc versus the British pound versus the U.S. dollar. No, no, it's it's basically all shaking hands. Okay, we're all going to debase the currency on a relative basis, and and the formation of capital is totally morphed. In the past uh, uh, 10 years, you can really see. Who would ever think that Japan would all of a sudden raise money? Zero interest rate. No one buys it. The government buys it themselves. They create this funny money and they buy 15% of the stock market. They buy real assets, and they're buying them through an ETF. Switzerland does the same thing. They float all this money, no one's buying it, so they create the money, and they buy Cadbury's because the dividend yields higher than what they have to pay to service their own position. And they're buying buying Microsoft, and they're buying Apple. Uh, This is a game changer. The Federal Reserve cannot buy directly shares in public companies, but they can stabilize markets through the futures market, and they are turning around buying ETFs now. Now we saw in March, all of a sudden, rates collapse, but banks wouldn't make loans, so the second tier financing, mezzanine funding went to 14%. That's not good for the economy. Immediately, the Fed comes in and starts buying ETFs. They're buying Muni ETFs They get the, the burden off the of States rolling over their, their tax-free bonds. They take the burden off of corporates. This is very, very different world. Uh, the Greenspan leaves. And people complain about him, and, and the Federal Reserve was six percent of the GDP. Today, under Powell, it's now over thirty percent of the GDP. And he says we're going to forcefully, proactively, and aggressively, basically print money. He said this three weeks ago. This is very, very different. So I see gold rising in all com- on all currencies, and I just see it slightly different than the other. Uh, as all these different countries have different ways of fighting the coronavirus. Uh, and, and, and so I think that gold as an asset class is rising. And we're also seeing real estate. The you know, real estate in San Antonio was up 73% in sales last month over this month, or sorry, June over, over July. Uh, in May, there was up against April. Who would think that? Who can't go visit the houses, lockdown. But people are buying on the web, like they're buying their food on Amazon, so we do have this, this debasement, currency debasement, and that's what makes Gold this beautiful unique asset class.
0: It, it, it is. Look, and, and I recognise a little bit of if you sell nails, a hammer is always the solution here. So I do I do want to have a bit more of a rounded discussion about the economy with you here. So the Fed, and I was going to ask a bunch of questions, but you, you beautifully answered some of it. So it's like, well, what else should they have done? Could they have done? Uh, to not put us put the U.S. in this position.
1: Well, it's so difficult because it's an election year, and, and uh, uh, I, I, I've seen things weaponized uh, so easily in America and captured the imagination of the media. So let's take a look. At every year, I'm so blessed. I get I go to Harvard with 180 other CEOs from 50 different countries, and we study cases. We become kids again. We stay in a dorm. We have these class studies and. Uh, two years ago, it was it was on the growth of healthcare during Obama. So everything was Obamacare and attack, attack, especially from uh, the right side of the of the fence, uh, and not being that they're right, it's just this assault. So you would think intuitively all this negative news and healthcare going to be free, uh, that what a burden that would be, that this would be the worst industry, and the insurance stocks and the hospitals took off at a 45 degree angle. I mean, some of these stocks were up. Five and eight hundred percent during that eight-year run under President Obama. Totally contrary to thinking. I'm just coming working on a new paper on Russia. Ever since the Crimean War, and all of a sudden, uh, Trump is being uh, Russia is being weaponized against Trump. And uh, there has to be collusion. There's no way Trump could ever win. And there's assault got to blame Russia. The Russian stock market has outperformed America during President Trump's term. There's such pervasive negative news and oil went up, oil crashed and oil is 50% of their cash flow uh, for that country is an important part. It's interesting that you have to sit back and say, OK, what are they weaponizing? COVID-19 has become the weapon to dethrone President Trump from a second term. And and you can see no matter what he says, good or bad is always going to be negative and it'll be spun that way. But the quants don't care. That's what I love about it. It's agnostic. It's politically agnostic. It's religious agnostic. And where they look at just the patterns, the momentum of the data, the extremeness of the data, and they buy the stock market. So at a zero interest rate environment, uh, the stock markets making a new highs. Well, what, don't fight the Fed is something I heard four years ago when I got in the business. And the Fed is printing lots of money. And so are other bankers around the world. And the formation of capital is morphed. So zero interest rates, buy stocks paying dividends, buy stocks that have the ability to pay dividends increase. And you know what's thrilling about this journey is gold stocks for the first time in a decade at the end of March, the 100 producers we follow around the world had a free cash flow as an average. Very important. December, they didn't. September last year, June of last year, no. but Now they do. June is even better. So, the generalists, the non-gold stock buyers, just buying free cash flow, grind momentum and revenue, etc., are buying the Gold stocks. So, when we take a look at our ETF, GOAU coming over those March lows, it's far over 4, more than double billions rise. Uh, and, and I think that you're seeing this uh, everywhere, that uh, the other indexes, Barrick and Newman advertise now in their press releases that they have free cash flow yields.
0: So they're attracting a new set of eyes. I, I, I get that, Frank. But, but and before we kind of leave the political scene, which because I do want to talk, to you, you know, you're a very well-read guy, and we had a great chat before the show started um, about this. But the market is driven by sentiment, okay? You know, think we we talked about it, whether it be wars or natural disasters or fiscal and monetary policy, or there are lots lots of reasons why you know sentiment is important uh, to the, the stock market. And in the case of gold, you know the old cliche, you know gold is a safe haven. It basically saying when people are frightened or scared, they go to gold. That's, that's what happened. And you can see in this current economic climate, with quantitative easing, printing of money, dropped from helicopters from thirty-five thousand feet, uh, and no end in sight to that, and, and no resolution to the, the COVID position at the moment. People are frightened. Price has been driven up, and a lot of the gold stocks. Quite frankly, some of them they've done nothing, but they're doubling and troubling. uh their market caps are doubling, traveling Share price is going through the roof. Can I just talk about a what if scenario in terms of changing sentiment? So, what happens when you're the scientist? What happens when the vaccine comes along and it works? Does that change sentiment hugely, no. or is it just the fundamentals to gold just are too overwhelming?
1: Well, first of all, for me as a CEO of US Global Investors, uh, that's great for my Jet CTF. <laughs> uh, you know, a year ago, they were processing TSA 2.7 million people a day. It fell down to April the 14th, down to 89,000. Now it's pushed through 800,000, and that's excluding international travel. So, a vaccine that would be a game changer. Uh, but sitting back on, on the world of gold, no, I don't think it changed this. And there's a couple of fundamental reasons for that. Uh, one, in a macro force, as I mentioned, GDP per capita. If we go back 30 years ago, uh, Chindia, uh, 30 years ago, had a global footprint for gold consumption of about 10%. Most of that was Indians. Indian women today were six, let me see the number, uh, five, four, Three times the amount of gold in Fort Knox. And that's the love trade. If you look at the consumption of gold over the past 30 years, it's risen on a steadily ba- steady basis of 3% a year, is for love. And as China became a significant GDP per capita growth and wealth of the middle class, we saw more gold consumption for jewelry demand. If it's a year of the tiger, you'll see all through Asia and all the windows 24 karat gold tigers. Uh, you know, that's just the reality uh, of what is taking place. And you put in Southeast Asia has been on a boom since '97. That uh, financial disaster in uh, and it takes about four years. So what's interesting is that the crisis of '97 bottomed in 2001 for Asia. '98 uh, was Russia in, it defaulted. It bottomed in 2002, and we had this big run up, and then we have the correction, and now we have this next run. So I think it's important to look at this love trade. The other factor is, is this highly correlated GDP per capita, is they're still rising in these countries, is if you go back date data 30 years ago to today, today, China and India are 53% of all Gold consumption, 53%. So what happens when their GDP per capita grows faster than the rest of the world, and they have a cultural affinity towards Gold, I think is going to grow. So over 60% of all Gold demand in the world is for love. is fear. Now, out of that fear, it gets triggered when you have a tsunami of a pandemic and you have this incredible currency debasement, And so gold takes on its new life because it is the fourth most liquid asset class in the world. And all of a sudden it becomes this new definition of money. And I also want to share with you the third key factor has been peak gold. There was peak oil until the fractures came along. And that was a game changer. America all of a sudden changed the supply demands. Gold oil fell below 100 and crashed, fell back, went up. And each time uh, it gets up here over $60, the frackers start turning it on. Uh, and there's a, such a surplus right now in the US. So there is no superman that can see through rock to find gold. Uh, and so I think that uh, this uh, peak supply in gold is real. I think they're printing money at an, an unprecedented rate globally. And, and I think that this, we're in the secular bull market for the next six years. And the very last thing to come on this macro force is that Ray Dalio so so well, he said, yes, there is in a, in a social society, there is a big gap between the top 10% and the bottom 10% income earners in developed countries, huge difference, but there's a bigger gap in the pol- political policies and politicians. And because you have such a big political gap on solutions to problems, that's why they're not being fixed. So I believe that whenever you get such subs- that you have a big imbalance between monetary and fiscal policies, then the gold becomes extremely attractive. And we have I've had this for 18 months now, a big imbalance, and that started off with a 50-day went above the 200 day moving average. Everyone was very still on gold, and just recently they've become bullish. It's short term,
0: it could easily correct 10%. But I still think it maintains that bull cycle. I, 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 you touched upon a lot of different topics there. I think that obviously the, the fiscal and monetary policy component. I, I do agree with peak gold. I there's there's something to that as well because you know we, you know I think big miners would definitely agree with you. I think it would be interesting to see the way that some of these new um, China, India, in terms of the the, the millennials, uh, you know what they start. To value and will gold continue to be close to them? Will it be so? What are you what do call it? Love, love gold, um, love trade, love trade, so love, trade, trade. Okay. love trade. Okay, okay, you love gold, but they, they do love trade. Um, so it'd be interesting to sort of see how those economies change over time, and, and you know, as a percentage, what love trade continues to, to be. But um, let, let's move. On. Can I can I talk about a bigger question? Mm. Something happened,
1: brand new for me, brand new experience mm-hmm. in March we started to see money. It was unprecedented. 70 days, it came into our JETS ETF. Every day, a mm-hmm. billion dollars. There's never been where an ETF would fall half in price and all of a sudden, a billion dollars. Where was this money started coming from? Well, there were some hedge funds shorting the airlines and wanted to, to, to balance their decision by going along JETS. And, and then there was these millennials. Schwab and TD Waterhouse announced that they opened 600,000 online accounts in the month of March. Wow. What's happening here? Robinhood was millions. Robinhood, it costs nothing to open an account. You can have fractions of shares. Uh, And when we started exploring to find out, and the data allows you to see how many Robinhood investors came into our Jets ETF, there was over 20,000 came in at the bottom. And they kept buying all through March, April, and then May. And then tr- then Buffett comes out and says, uh, uh, He's out of the airlines. It's bad. And the airlines take off. So the total number is about 25,000 of these retail investors put probably a couple hundred million dollars. And then jets took off the first run up 50%. So they made money. But all the media was how bad it is. Millennials are there. They're, they're stuck at home. So they now become day traders. I believe it's been very important to the ecosystem that we need to have minnows along with sharks, tunas, whales to have a healthy ocean. We need the same in the financial world. But when you go to Robinhood's website, the toolbar has gold as an asset class. Schwab doesn't, Fidelity doesn't, TD Waterhouse doesn't have it. And so you have an asset now, this Robinhood is supposed to be valued at $8 billion as a unicorn. And, and so they're very big and caught up in looking at history. And they're very, these young millennials are much smarter and savvy of looking at these cycles you and I have been talking about. Going back in history, uh, the, one of the things we were buying jets was I uh, found out was that after 9-11, the airlines were the world shut down for a week. Then six months later, they were up 80%. After SARS in Asia in 2003, they were up 120% six months later and after 2009 bottom, March 2009, six months later, the airlines were up 80% again. Think of this history work. They're piling in speculating that we're going to get this bounce. So they're looking at Gold. And I think that that's probably healthy, that there's a game-changer happening,
0: the positive outcomes of this lockdown. Yeah. I think, look, okay. I'd love to see more data on that. Where does Robinhood actually go? what influence will it continue to have? Just how smart the decision-making is, or if it's just, you know, follow my leader. Um, because, the, the, like I say, it comes back to sentiment. You, you know, we talked about this at the beginning. If you get momentum and people follow. And, you know, we will, I guess, we shall see over the next coming months and, and possibly years where, where Robinhood fits in the ecosystem that you, you describe. But can I, can I talk about the price of Gold? Okay. I want to see how you feel about this. By the way, by the way it reminds me of the 90s when I first moved to
1: Texas. Yeah. of people discovering mutual funds, and, and and all the baby boomers piling into mutual funds for their four hundred one k. It was incredible mutual fund growth. Today they don't buy mutual funds; they buy ETFs. Right. And and so to me, I, I looks, it looks appears to me that we've got this another new wave coming in, and it's millennials.
0: Yeah, and and again, we'll we'll see what they segue to, or move on to next, or if indeed they can, you know. Because again, a lot of a lot of data about that same group suggests that um, they're perhaps borrowing money to invest, and you know that's obviously not not healthy. You know,
1: it's a good point you make. There's just so much negative about them that just shocks me. Hmm. And I'm looking at my own data and saying, twenty five thousand, I made a lot of money. It's great news. So,
0: uh, I, I, I want really people to make money. I do
1: want people to make it's, money. I, I'm going. Is, they're that stupid. They're that bad. But I'm I'm experiencing something else and I'm seeing the same thing with my Gold uh, ETF, GoAU, uh, is, you know, every day they're just buying it uh, as Gold has been rising. So there's something happening that is changing, and I think you're right about the data. Do uh, you know that the total, uh, over 70% of the checks they got from uh, the government uh, went into the stock market? Do you know that? That was another interesting I, I, data point. I did read and that. I did read that. The- total, the total dollars as a group, they've been investing, is greater than the stock buybacks for three months.
0: Right. Again, I'd love to have another conversation with you another time about, you know, uh, quantitative and qualitative data and the, the points at which you measure data. So that's. And, but they, they learn like we're doing now. They're YouTubers, they're
1: podcasters. They learn from podcasting and YouTube.
0: Okay. And and they will learn, and they've got to start somewhere. So there's nothing wrong with that. I just want to, you know, I'm just just saying that we collectively in the investment community need to report accurately what's going on once once we know. So can I ask a question about the price of gold, please? Okay, so gold broke two thousand. People got excited. Never broken two thousand before. But if we if we talk about um, inflation adjusted, okay, inflation adjusted. Where we are today with the price of gold is the same as 2011, give or take 20, 30 bucks. It's not quite where we were in uh, 1980. I want to go back that far, where it was the equivalent of 2,200. So we're a couple of hundred bucks off where we were in in 1980. So that's just a statement of fact about uh, uh, inflation-adjusted numbers. Okay. So what are the lessons that we can learn from those two big peaks, 2011? nineteen eighty, which applied today, or has the world completely changed in ten and forty years?
1: Well, you know it's a it's a very good up space you make this, because uh, the the definition of inflation, the definition of CPI has changed three times since nineteen eighty. And if you were using the CPI number in nineteen eighty today, gold should be seven thousand. So you're seeing that if you look at the inflation for buying food, the inflation for buying a host of products is actually gone up. Uh, and, and I've written about this several times. Uh, of, of look at the old indicator and the new indicator. So did the governments around smart get together and say, okay, we got to modify this CPI tool and inflation looks better, and if we can make it this way. I, you know, it makes you suspect. Uh, but i just know that if you can take the algorithm for the old cpi number run it through and go to be substantially higher
0: but it's not but it's, but it's not, not
1: right and 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 uh, you know the other thing that shocks me is that the number of after uh, all the uh, traders were charged for libor and the investment banks uh, were charged for manipulating libor uh, they found the same thing with spoofing Gold and Silver markets, in particular, when you had the first week of October and uh, uh, India has celebrating Gandhi's birthday uh, on the 1st of October, and it's Chinese Communist Day, mm. uh, and then you have the Chinese New Year that's spoofing and knocked the price of Gold down. Okay. So They get charged, the judge found them guilty, and they still haven't put them
0: away. Let's come back to the question. What lessons, because you know, those are the peaks back then, right? And they came off, you know. We talked about recessions in 2001 of nine months, 2007 of 17 months, 2020 it's been six months technical recession. Um, so what lessons do we learn from history that we apply today? And do we also recognize that gold may. Full back. It may, may may come back. Do you think it does? Mathematically, I'm very quant driven.
1: I look at the standard deviation moves over rolling 12-months, going back over a decade, and I look at 60 days rolling over 5-years. We were up 2 standard deviations over uh, 60 trading days and we're up over 1 standard deviation over rolling 12-months. Mathematically, it says that there is an 80% probability that we could have a 10% correction over the next 60 trading days. Easy. There's no doubt. Uh, and we've had that three times since the beginning of this bull cycle in gold. And we had it in March. You know, gold fell below the 50 day, uh, fell down the 20 day, and then bounced right back up. So uh, I think it's extended short term, but I do not believe that there's anything to dismantle uh, this, this currency debasement globally.
0: Okay. May drop back. To, it mathematically could drop back to eighteen hundred, but the long-term run trend, based on what you've just said, is is up. So I've got to ask you the next question. I want to want to see uh, you know how much of this you know you, you care about really, because I've I've watched a number of your interviews, and the headlines that people who do interviews with you are very attractive. You talk about. $3000 gold, $4000 gold, $10000 gold and you've talked about it for the last 5 years. It's you know you're a gold guy, right? But do you how do you feel when you see someone quoting uh, these large numbers without necessarily going, "Oh, $4000 gold in 3 years, $10000 gold eventually." I mean, what's the message you want you would rather get out there and, to gold investors which which is a little bit less sensationalist? But a little bit more realistic.
1: Well, I've been saying it now for, for many months. Um, and I think my first piece of writing 4,000 was after analyzing uh, how the debt markets and percentage of the GDP and the Federal Reserve balance sheet changed uh, 2008 9. And, and so, in that analysis back in May, as when I first started coming out and saying, I think it could go to 4,000. Uh, I think it's, it's, and it doesn't mean there's a war. Uh, that of missiles with each other, but there is a war against COVID. And and when all that print money has been printed, it just doesn't evaporate overnight. Uh, and you're going to start seeing money go into art. You're going to start seeing money going into look at Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, I'm the largest, I'm the chairman of Hive Blockchain, the largest crypto mining company. Uh, and and Ethereum's gone from 110 at the beginning of the year, ran up to 280. All back to 125, and now it's 400. Uh, and so this is, has to do with all this money printing, and, and so you have a whole sort of audience of millennials that go and buy crypto, and then you have another audience that go buy gold. Uh, and, and I think for myself, for, for our funds, we're looking for things that do well during a coronavirus because I don't think it's going to. They get a vaccine, but we got to remember this coronavirus has mutated over 14 times now it's an RNA based virus. So it's going to continue to mutate. So that vaccine is going to have to always be evolving. Uh, And and so I think that how we deal and grow up with it is going to be um, looking for those companies that are going to do well with it. And one of the first things you look at say in America is who's hiring people? Well, one of the best food delivery systems is Chipotle. They just announced uh, 10 days ago, hiring 10,000 people in March, Amazon announced hiring 100,000 people, where everyone's losing their job. Uh, so we have to t- take a look at where's the growth with that? Where's that cycle? And I, for me, it's looking at the data of job hiring, not job cutting, is usually a great precursor to those companies doing well. And I think that's also a global phenomenon.
0: OK, What happens if the Democrats win the election in November?
1: Well, yeah, I think that uh, Biden has said it very clearly. Uh, it's going to raise taxes. Um, I don't know how he can handle, you know, grouping with a lot of his hardcore left uh, makers from New York City, AOC to uh, Minneapolis to Seattle. Uh, these are radical left uh, politicians. Uh, so I, I don't know how he can handle that. But raising taxes will be good for my tax-free bonds. But uh, it'll probably be bad for stocks um, and so that'll be something just to recognise, uh, that would be the term, but right now we're not seeing that, the election is within 6-months, so we'll see what happens. Um, what we did see in the last election, a lot of people would not admit they're voting for Trump, they just wouldn't do it, and um, but they voted for him because that's what the tally showed up and uh, you can have that still at this cycle.
0: Yeah, a bit. I think the whole world is waiting for that outcome. Um, You know, and I'd like that. So, so what
1: happens if he does? You know, what happens then? You know, like uh, that. To me, is a more interesting uh, uh, deal. I think the biggest thing that the smartest people believe that he's accomplished um, has been not afraid to take on uh, other bullies like China. That's been important for North Korea. It uh, doesn't matter, he's been showing, you know, not, not afraid of that. And two, more important is the um, election of uh, conservative, real constitutional lawyers into the federal court system. Because the federal court and the Supreme Court and, and all the federal judges across the country that are real constitutionalists believe, like British common law, private property rights. And the left do not believe in them. They'll find ways to you, you basically undermine them, or usurp them. I've seen this with a, in, in Canada, a farm I have, uh, make the area green, and all of a sudden the value of your property goes down, and the property across the highway goes up over ten years, it doubles, but not yours because they basically put a, a, a tax on it. So I think that um, that is his biggest legacy will be slowing down and bringing in uh, judges that.
0: That really respect common law and private property rights. Interesting, interesting, interesting. So you think, in your mind, the trade war with China was the right thing to do? It it stood up to a bully. Do you think that it it has had an impact on the economy, or short or 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 medium term? Well, I think there's a real, true, unlevel playing field, Uh, and uh,
1: you can't. Facebook's not a lot over there. The espionage is well known. Uh, The recent uh, Houston issue of the um, embassy being consulate being shut down is because they were burning uh, documents. And why? Because a couple have been arrested, and I guess the um, DOJ and and FBI, whatever departments were investigating, they found a couple of people stealing um, data for mining, for oil and gas, oil and gas in particular. Uh, So this theft. Is a big issue, and uh, and so I think that he's willing to take that on. Uh, I think what he did with North Korea was really to test to see what China would do, uh, and they didn't send in like they did last time a couple of million soldiers into North Korea, uh, and so that gave him the positioning to go and challenge them for for trade. Um, so I, I think that that's probably you know that it's difficult the way he does it. Uh, he is brutal in in the way he. Word choices and now it's coming back. You know, what goes around comes around. Uh, if he miscommunicates anyone's name the way he bullied other people, with is now coming back to hurt him in many ways. Like the, the name of the president of, of Thailand or is it Thailand? Uh, you know, like uh, this type of stuff just shows up in the independent in England. You know, i guys are sending to me uh, this type of information, but. Uh, I I think that a lot of people are concerned in America on political correctness, uh, and and they're afraid to actually tell you that, Uh, and and so do they champion this guy? We talked this earlier. I think it's really important to go back, look at when the printing press was created, the educational masses grew dramatically, more people read, first big book was the Bible, and it led to the Reformation out of Germany against the papacy against the Pope, sending money there, and that showed up in England in Henry VIII. And that was a cultural change. Uh, and, and so we're seeing this take place with social media and the internet uh, and how that, that's a real big game changer with his tweeting and his Twitter followers, etc., He is able to all of a sudden have his own constituents that don't trust the normal media. And it doesn't matter what he says that everyone's going to attack him for. They're following him. Uh, this is something that I don't know the answer to. But I do know when you look back, maybe in 30 years, I can look back uh, and be able to analyze it. But there's something happening because communication has changed just like the
0: printing press changed things. Well, he's he's going to have some similarities to Henry VIII. He, I think he had six wives, so he's he's getting there. He's halfway there. Um, one last thing, but again, in terms of your view of um, th- this control thing, you know, because you're using examples uh, of what China's doing. So, just let me my. So, TikTok, he is stepping into a, what looks like a, uh, well, it doesn't look like a federal business, but why, why is he getting involved with that? Why is he going to ban TikTok? What's the logic of him I focusing think, on something like that?
1: I think you have to respect that there's something there with the DOJ and uh, the FBI, and I think it's news that we're not seeing and something in that we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. Um a uh, well, you know, is there a malware in there that's tracking all, all the data the kids are using and sending it back to China? Uh they make all this money off America and they collect all the data. Uh that makes it you know very, very uh, concerned. uh they can manipulate probably elections by manipulating what goes into TikTok. TikTok was beginning as humorous and now I'm seeing politi- it's very politicized. Uh and so I think there's something else with that. And I also know that I leave this country, if I an American, I give up my passport, I have to pay a big exit tax because I made all my money here. If I'm a green card holder and I leave this country, I still not have to pay an, ex- an, ex- an exit tax because I made all this money here. So I think what they're trying to apply to TikTok, if you made all this money in America and you're going to sell it, then you have to pay back a tax to
0: the government. Got it. Okay. Okay. So it's kind of like they've learned a lot of lessons from the whole face, face, uh, Facebook debacle again, with some sort of similar in terms of data collection and paying taxes in the right jurisdiction, etc. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that's a whole again another another debate because uh, again, we 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 see a lot of these big technology companies coming, sitting in Europe, collecting money and making money in Europe, and then paying taxes or paying an intellectual property tax to. Hold coat offshore. And
1: coming back to you know, history, mm-hmm. uh, all the tribes, the, Jew, the Israeli tribe, the Israelites, were all lost in that desert. And along comes Moses, and he distills 465 laws of Leviticus, which no one can remember, down to 10, one for every digit. So if you follow these 10 commandments, our group, our company, our country can survive and thrive but we have to follow, everyone has to memorise these 10, and in those is envy. And envy will destroy a culture, a family, a country, a team, a sports. And so what we see, so often from the socialist world, are envy policies to as a solution to a problem. And that really doesn't work out short-term, yes, but
0: long-term, no, it just doesn't work out. Good way to finish, on the Bible. Ten Commandments. I th- I'm happy with that. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you so much for that. That was a great chat. I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that. Also, sort of a romp through lots of different topics there, but uh, some philosophical and you know a lot of macro. And uh, your view on gold is much appreciated. Thank you. My, my my father
1: always said that Moses is a marketing genius. He takes <laughs> complexity and simplify it. And Jesus was even bigger because he made it to two two arms. He had two laws. I like this. So everyone can definitely memorize uneducated people. So it's interesting um, marketing mavens.
0: (laughs) Well, frankly, I appreciate learning from you today. I really do. Um, We've got to have you back on and cover some of those topics we didn't get into today, but uh, congratulations with US global investors. Um, Obviously, times are good at the moment. You um, must come back on and tell us uh, how things progress over the next couple of months. Well I enjoyed your broad uh, selection of
1: questions and different angles to make it very rewarding and enriching for me. It was a great experience.
0: Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn.